0: I'm Marty Moskoway, and welcome to The Connection. Here's a recent headlines from the New York Times. The U.S. population is older than it has ever been. The Census Bureau found in 2022 that the median age was 38.9 years. In 1980, it was 30 years. That's almost a decade difference. So while we are skewing older as a population, negative stereotypes about old age persist, usually driven by fear. Older people are often dismissed, marginalized, and ignored. While physical and mental decline are a fact of life, there can be upsides to being in your 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond, things like experience and wisdom. Being older or old is not a one-size-fits-all experience. It's as diverse and unique as all other parts of life. Today in The Connection, we examine the myths about getting older and talk about what it takes to find meaning, purpose, and happiness when you know your days are numbered. Joining us is gerontologist Tracy Gendron. She wrote a book called Ageism Unmasked, Exploring Age Bias and How to End It. She's also chair of the Department of Gerontology at Virginia Commonwealth University. And Tracy Gendron, nice to have you with
1: us on The Connection. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You're very welcome. What is the most pernicious aspect of ageism from your perspective?
1: Oh, there's so many. But I would say that one of the most damaging is what you were talking about, that fear that we carry around about our own aging. So it's how we feel about ourselves and our own aging. And that can manifest in really dangerous health outcomes.
0: Do you think older people and sort of speaking broadly that, that we have
1: internalized ageism? I think all people have internalized ageism when we live in a culture as you were saying that really equates aging with fear and something that's shameful and something that's a failure, then it's, you know, very challenging for us to look forward to our later years with a sense of hope and a sense of joy and a sense of possibility. Are we unique,
0: we meaning the United States of America, uh, compared to other parts of the world in
1: our view about being old or aging? Sadly, we are not unique. Research at this point shows that ageism is really in every continent, in just about every country. There are some that have more celebrations and customs that are embedded to celebrate older people. But as you see a rise in capitalism, and you see kind of a a split of families and not having intergenerational living, you tend to see the rise of ageism everywhere.
0: Because of segregation, right? I mean, people that that sort of separate themselves out or separate out old people so there's less contact.
1: That's absolutely part of it. When you think about age segregation, it is one of the few forms of normalized segregation that we certainly have in this country, age and ability. And when we put other people behind walls, brick walls in communities away from other people, you can see how that feeds fear of them and fears of growing older. Of course, some people want to be behind those brick walls because it feels safer. That is absolutely true. And the other part of that is, as I said, kind of family members are so dispersed now where we used to have more intergenerational living and we would have these organic, age-diverse relationships. Now we have people living very far from each other, which also makes caring for a loved one that has needs that much more challenging. So, you know, there's a purpose for that segregated living, but it also does contribute to that fear and the negative stereotypes.
0: Well, let's go back in time and even going back to fairy tales this is something that you write about and when you look at uh, the the images or even the the stories that are about old witches and and stepmothers and people <laughs> like that and i guess uh, you know scary old men as well that it seems that this is feels almost hardwired to have this negative view of old people
1: yeah and here's the interesting thing when you think about it you know ageism is not innate we are not born with this stereotype or this dislike for older people ageism is taught So when we have these scary characters, as you said, the witches, the hags, or you have depictions of older people as silly, as senile, and it's baked into our children's literature and to our movies, we're actually teaching our children to be ageist. We are teaching that there is little value to be older. So it is truly baked in.
0: I wonder, too, thinking of those fairy tales, and I, I tend to think of the the females, you know, the old hags, the old witches, the old maids. Yeah. Is
1: the same true for men? You know, gendered ageism is is a different kind of phenomenon for both men and women. And I think in that context, we have far more negative depictions and visual representations of older women than we do older men. Even think of, you know, the silver fox. Um, and how men, you know, we talk about getting more distinguished as they get older. So I do think that it, there's definitely a lean towards it being harsher for older women.
0: And I'm thinking also that sort of jumping to, to present day about the idea that, that, that wrinkles are the last thing that you want and, 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 and all the ads for Botox. And it's so interesting when you look on television, the people that are in those ads, they look like they're 30 years old. They're not
1: 70 years old. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So much pressure and so much shame. We are shamed for our natural aging faces. And I think that's really what pains me the most. Who says wrinkles aren't attractive? Well, people with a lot of money that can market all this stuff, right? Exactly, exactly. Who benefits from ageism? That is the question.
0: Well, I I do want to spend some more time on ageism, but let's talk about anti-ageism. What does that look like?
1: Oh, anti-ageism is a growing movement that we are seeing where people really are starting to question and starting to push back and starting to say that we really value and want to have momentum towards age equity, a place where all people can age um, with dignity and age with purpose and age with meaning. And you're really seeing the movement start to really take off over the past few years.
0: And is that because they're just a lot more old people or, or baby boomers who are aging into their seventies, eighties and beyond?
1: I think it is because there's more people. I also think because people are are finally starting to catch on and see. You know, ageism has been something really invisible for quite some time. But once you see it and you recognize it, then you go, you know what? I can change this. I can do something about it. So we're seeing people write books. We're seeing people develop websites. We're seeing many, many more older influencers and younger influencers that are saying, hey, we can do this differently. We can think about this differently. I'm thinking
0: about the sort of inside, outside age. I'm someone in, in my 70s, so I guess I qualify as a, you know, this is where the linguistics sometimes fails us. But I think of myself as an older person. Those are the words that I would use to describe myself. Um, but there's that sort of inside how you feel as an older person and how you're perceived as an older person.
1: Yeah, that question of how old do you feel is one that's really interesting to me, and I think really challenging. And when I talk about this with different audiences of people, it seems to be one that's kind of hard to wrap your head around, because what does old feel like? What is it supposed to feel like? First of all, we stigmatize being old. But second of all, old is not a feeling, and it's not just one thing. Old could mean you know, wise, experienced. For many people, old means tired or not feeling well. So what does it mean to feel older or younger? You know, what I say to folks is if you're seventy, that's what seventy feels like for you. <laughs> so we all feel our age when you think about it.
0: Well, you even describe it as a kind of a left handed compliment when someone says to an older person, Oh, you don't look
1: seventy-five, you look so much younger. Exactly. And you're like, nope, this is what 70 looks like for me. And if anything, when someone says that, I think it really minimizes how hard we all work to learn and grow and get to the age we are. You know, it's we have a lot of hard lessons that we go through in life. And I think we're very proud of the things that we accomplish. So to be this age means that I learned a lot and I overcame a lot. I want to be acknowledged for that. I think all of that
0: is true, and I also think that as you get older, there there are issues about health. I can't tell you how many of my friends and family, you know, are struggling with health issues, and these are real things. These are real threats to their future, and I think that is also a reality. So even if even if as an older person you feel well, you do feel like you're surrounded by people who are not well, and that can be very humbling Absolutely, and, and worrying on top of that as well.
1: You know, in gerontology we talk about aging as the biopsychosocial spiritual process of change. And that change includes growth, but it also includes loss and decline. And the truth is, you know, as you said, we we our bodies change over time, we do lose ability, we can't do the things we used to do, but we are also all mortal. So eventually we are all going to decline. And I think part of the way we pathologize dependence and pathologize death also contributes to that. So there's kind of this fear of ageism and ableism that kind of intersects and comes together. Um, and it can be very challenging. In fact, you make the, in your book, you make the
0: connection between ageism and ableism. Flesh that out for us.
1: Yeah, well, ageism is discrimination based on age. And by the way, that can be towards both older and younger people. Um, Ableism is discrimination based on perceived ability, and we value some abilities over others. So they really do come together because, as you said, as we get older, we are going to experience changes in our bodies that do slow us down, that maybe do affect our cognition, that maybe do affect our senses. So to be doubly discriminated against is when we have some form of disability and we are older, but disability can also happen at any point in our lifetime and often at multiple points in our lifetime.
0: I also think one of the issues for for being an older person is just this issue of dependence, you know, just how much do you want to be dependent on other people? How much do you feel like you, you need help navigating through life? And I think that's a tricky thing.
1: Absolutely. And I think, as I said, we really pathologize dependence. You know, we have a hard time asking for help from others at at all stages of our life. Um, And we do fear becoming a burden on others. And this term caregiving, I think, has contributed to that as well. You know, we think of caregiving as something that is about burnout and is about burden. So I also think there's some systemic issues that are there um, when really the truth is we are always interdependent and we always need each other at all stages of life.
0: Let me pick up on something that you referenced earlier, that, that ageism can go in both directions. And I certainly have heard older people complain about younger people, you know, that they they are always on their phone, you know, they don't get jobs, they don't move out of the house, that, that ageism can, can go both ways and that older people can be guilty of that as well.
1: Absolutely. So ageism is any time we discriminate, we stereotype, we make assumptions or judgments about someone based on age. And yes, it absolutely can be directed at younger people as well. Assuming someone is entitled or lazy because they are younger, assuming that someone doesn't have the skills or capabilities just because of the way they look is just as egregious as assuming that someone who's older isn't tech savvy or, you know, is cognitively impaired in some way. All of these are forms of ageism.
0: Well, let's take a very short break and then we'll get back to our conversation. We're talking with Tracy Gendrum. She's chair for the Virginia Commonwealth University Department of Gerontology, director for the Virginia Center on Aging, and wrote a book called Ageism Unmasked, Exploring Age Bias and How to End It. Uh, Lorraine Carey, Waiting in the Wings, uh, she wrote a book about uh, caring for her nana when she was 100 years old. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Marty Moskowain, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. We've been talking about aging, something we are all doing all the time, and also about some of the enduring myths and stereotypes about being old, being elderly. Our guest is gerontologist Tracy Gendron, author of a book called Ageism Unmasked. Joining us now is Philadelphia writer Lorreen Carey. Her life changed George. Drastically, the year her 100 year old grandmother moved in with her and her family, her health was failing and Carrie took on the role of caregiver, which she wrote about in her 2019 memoir, Lady Sitting, My Year with Nana at the End of Her Century. Carrie writes about their close bond when they were, when she was a child, I should say, the daily challenges of caring for her ailing and often demanding grandmother, the weight of family obligations and the pain of loss. Her grandmother died in November. 2008. Lorraine Carey is adapting her memoir for the stage, which will debut in January at the Arden Theater here in Philadelphia. And Lorraine Carey, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Mm, Thank you so much, Marty. You're very welcome. You know, your grandmother died 15 years ago, almost 15 years ago, (gasps) which is, you know, both short and long probably for you. But I wonder, with the passage of time if your relationship with her has changed and i ask that knowing people who will say that they have a different relationship with a parent or a grandparent after they have deceased
2: some some parts of our relationship are are different and i think that's because because i keep growing because i'm getting older certainly it's different because i've written about uh, her and right. us and our family. And written, I mean, not just once, but this is the third time I did a little 30 minute opera about it. So f- it, it means that I'm, um, I'm growing, I have become a senior citizen while I have been writing about her hmm. in her seniority.
0: And her seniority in that last year of her life, and she was 100 years old. You keep writing about her to understand her, to understand your relationship. I mean, and I I add, I mean, I think we all do that to try to understand our families and where we came from and how we ended up being the people that we are.
2: I think that's true. It's also true that as um, it feels to me like in this last, who knows? Quarter, tenth, fifth moment of my life. Um, th- this it is my it is my job to continue working to understand. Um, as as your guest was saying, you know, to understand um, decline and loss. Right when you're in third grade, you're trying to learn long division. Nice. When when you're 18, you're trying to figure out where you're going to launch yourself as an adult and then then it's whom you're going to love and how are you going to set up your life are you going to have kids how are you going to raise them like at each stage we're figuring things out for me in senior life it's figuring out how am i aiming myself mm-hmm. toward mortality and morbidity now thanks be to god I was a clergy wife for 20 years. I mean, Christianity talks about death every day there is. <laughs> so so you're right. always thinking about it. But, right. right. Um, but but thinking but about it in,
0: a, yeah. in personal terms, that
2: that's different. Absolutely. Different. Absolutely.
0: Uh, Tracy, let me get you in on the conversation. And we wanted to have Lorene come in because she wrote this really beautiful book about her nana, and I interviewed her about four years ago on the book, and now it's sort of taken on this, this different life as a play. But... I do think that that all of us, and maybe when you get to older age, you you begin to think about well, what is what has my life been? You know, who have I been to the people in my life? How do I want to land this thing? How do I want to end this thing? And as a gerontologist, do, do you find that to be a, a familiar conversation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I just love what you said about you know the the aims and. The goals that we have at different stages of our life from learning long division to, you know, coping <laughs> with my mortality and my morbidity. That's just beautifully said. And I do think that, you know, from a gerontological perspective, that is, that is developmentally appropriate is that, you know, we're, we're kind of leading to this place where we're building up to what is our legacy? What am I leaving my family? What am I leaving myself? And the salience of aging is when we do have that moment of going, I have less time in front of me than I do behind me. And, you know, how am I going to navigate that? How am I going to, you know, pivot to be thinking about my life in a different kind of way? There's this um, theory called Gerotranscendence. And if you haven't read about it, you should. And it's saying that as we get older, we become less concerned with material things. And we more have this internal cosmic shift. Of awareness of self of life of spirituality um, and many of us do this in more quiet solitude and that that is actually really developmentally appropriate for us to do that in fact so yeah. No. No. I'm sorry to jump in there, but you no, also d- sort
0: of talk about the difference between sort of doing, and I think you know many of us spend our lives doing, sometimes for ourselves, oftentimes for other people. But then there's the being part of life, yeah. and and yeah. and you you sort of say older ages
1: is, is can be more about being. Yeah. Absolutely, and and especially when we have check those boxes of, you know, I had a career um, and I did raise my kids or, you know, whatever it is that we accomplished. And now to think about that state of being and that internal growth and even how we contribute to the world externally as well. There's a real opportunity that's there.
0: My husband uh, talks about being a human being emeritus, or in my case, emerita. You know, he <laughs> sort, of, sort of graduated into this into this world of, of emeritus-hood. I wonder, uh, Lorene, if you want to weigh in on that.
2: So many, so, so many thoughts as I listen. It, I mean, Buddhism would have told us that we were supposed to be doing this all along, right? right. right? That mm-hmm. you're supposed to... Um, you know, before my husband went to seminary as an older person in his 50s, he studied Buddhism. And the first thing we were to do was to meditate on your own death, right? There's a, there's a great freedom when you stop clutching and clinging, when you stop counting your, um, your achievements and your marbles, um, and I, I, think it really has. As I was listening, um, you know, I was thinking about all the the conversation about selling, and the connection between that that wonderful word you used, uh okay. transcendence." Transcendence, yeah. yeah. We're all going to Google that when, when the show yeah, is yeah, over. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, as long as we are, are. Beings who are producing capital, as long as we are economic beings. I mean, I talk about this as somebody who spent a lot of time in the 19th century. I spent a lot of time thinking about enslavement and the money and economic. When, when, when we are little units to create money, society gives us a value. Now, they may not pay for us anymore or buy us, but we, that, that's what this is sitting on. And when we are not doing that, um, then we have to go other places for our meaning, although that meaning has always been
0: there. Yeah, indeed. And picking up on that and going back to you, Tracy, because oftentimes older people are seen as a burden because uh-huh. they are not – employed, they're, you know, living on social security, let's say, and then somehow that is framed as as taking away from, you know, our economy or our life versus contributing.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's that zero sum thinking, you know, that there's just not enough in the world where there is there's an abundance in the world. And just because you know, one one gives one takes it all kind of balances out. There's plenty. So I agree, it really is built on um, that that capitalistic notion of contribution, and it's a very narrow definition of contribution. Meanwhile, I think that there's so many opportunities for elders to give in different kinds of ways, being role models, being mentors, being mediators, all kinds of ways. Um, Maggie Kuhn, who was oh, yeah. the, the founder of the Grey Panthers, you know, she wrote about these these opportunities, the M's that she wrote about, mobilizers, mediators, mentors for older people. And that was in the 1970s. And I think we have yet to really wrap our heads around what that could mean. And really, you can't put a, a price, you can't quantify that kind of contribution either. Well, Lorraine
0: and I looked at each other because she was a Philly girl. <laughs> she yes. she formed or founded the, the Grey Panthers. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, in a previous show that I had, she was on several times and a formidable a woman, <laughs> if ever there was one. But I... I also, and this is something that, that you talk about in your book, Tracy, she also lived in a sort of intergenerational house. I think it was in mm-hmm. Germantown area of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. living with young people and how important that was for her and in part to help take care of her, but also just to have that interaction. And, and you were mentioning earlier, Tracy, how we kind of segregate old people. And, and so there's less interaction
1: Yeah, absolutely. And meanwhile, if there's one thing I could say that we could all do to change the way we see aging and to disrupt ageism, it would be to spend time with people of different ages, have intergenerational connections, have friends that are different ages from you, both older and younger, develop relationships based on affinity, because we have so much more in common with people than we think, no matter what age we are. You know, that's the way that we really organically create a society that values people of all ages. It's just to have those kind of just organic connections.
0: Which gets rid of some of that ageism that we were talking about earlier. And I know for you, you Lorreen, you've you've taught students, you know, college yeah. and also had programs with with young people through Art Sanctuary and a lot of the other programs and activities that you have had here in Philadelphia.
2: I think I think all of the that that work um for me all of that work is is based on my um experience as a as an African American person up uh, so I grew up with my um In my nuclear house, where my mother and father were trying very hard to do the correct 1950s thing and have their own house and have it be. But across the street from us was my mother's mother, my grandmother, who was in a house bought by and lived in. Hurt by her parents, my great grandmother and great grandfather, um, and it was to that house that the aunts returned when they divorced. Gosh. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> came back to that house, um, and it—it it was that house was safety. That mm. uh, uh, even after Grandmom died, I remember Paps. I remember seeing Grandmom come across the street when I had. Um, Measles. Measles was bad, by the way. It was, uh, I remember seeing her come across the street bringing a glass container of black cherry jello, which was something I could, I could suck down. With And just watching her come across the street made me feel like I was going to live. Mm. I mean, mm. I was a kid with asthma who had measles. I'd been to the hospital a couple of times. I'd had the passing out. So, you know, the the idea of death wasn't, wasn't just drama. It was close. And then to be up on the second floor with Pap, you know, with him, um, I, I remember he would teach me poetry. I would read the Bible to him. So... For me the Bible has a Barbadian accent because
0: <laughs> he's from Barbados. He was from Barbados.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, there is all of it it made it it was the way life was real. Yeah. Yeah. And and what a wonderful image
0: to see you know, I can see the almost the shaky yes. Jello coming across right. the street uh, <laughs> yes. to to help you with with your with your measles. You also, in your book, write about your father's mother who lived in New Jersey yes. and how her house was a kind of haven for you as a little girl. You could Other go side. there and yeah. sort of just be yourself and sure. and be away from your parents. And it sounds like when your your nana lived with you when she was a hundred, that you offered her a kind of a haven. Of course, she was older. She was
2: old. She was 100. But nonetheless, you know, a place where she could spend her final days. She came to us at 99. Uh, she left the world at 101. And in fact, yes, so across the street was my mother's family. Across the river in Jersey uh, was my father's mother and mm-hmm. uh, grandfather. But Nana, Nana Jackson... You know, again, all of them were trying to figure out how to do this American middle-class correctness. Nana had Columbia Records. She had the TV Guide. She had all of these uh, things. In fact, Nana, when I worked for Time magazine, I said, oh, honey, I've lived on time. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I would play records there. I, she had enough time so that when I went in the weekends, there was no, there was no horrid rush. There was no horrid need. Um, she would do her things. I would play with the records. I learned to be very careful, and she let me. I could pick up the needle. Mm-hmm. She gave me some old dresses. I was allowed to dress up in. Um, it felt more like Sabbath. It, the, I mean, the. Also, you talked about decline, Tracy, with bio, social, psycho, spiritual, mm. physical, all of that. Nana, Nana's house had all of those things before the decline. There was the space. Right. And although it was about enjoyment and comfort with Nana, I mean, we, we always joked it was sort of mean, but it was true, that Nana was... You know, Americans say they're spiritual but not religious. Nana was religious but not spiritual.
0: Kind of turned that on its head, right?
2: Right. But but the space was there, right?
0: It, it's so interesting to think about caregiving. And Tracy, you mentioned that earlier, and I, I, I agree with you. I think for some people, you know, it feels like this huge burden because it's because it's difficult. Um, but at the same time, it is a way to to give back to a family member that that did something that helped someone as a child.
1: Yeah, so true. And, and you know, what we don't talk about as much is the positive aspects of caregiving. And yet there's a, a pretty robust research on it that there's actually a lot of joy that takes place in these, you know, reciprocal relationships. There's joy of giving to other people and then how that gives to us. So when we only focus this narrative on, on burden and burnout, we're really missing on so many of the beautiful relational aspects of being in a caring relationship, and then we miss the opportunities to really nourish ourselves from that.
2: Uh, yeah, no, go ahead, Truth. We're, we're on, almost up on the break here, but go ahead, Lorraine. On my mother's side, my grandmother retired early to take care of her daughter, who had a stroke in her Ah. 30s. So her caregiving was the other Her grandmother life was spent caring for a paralyzed daughter. Um, And so I've seen it always in both ways, but also none of it, none of it adequately supported. So even as we won't talk about it, we also will not pay for it so that people can experience more joy. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, let's take a very short break. We'll get back to our conversation, and I do want to pick up on that. And Lorraine, can you stay with us? Sure, thank you, <laughs> Of course. And again, we are talking about aging in all its guises, all its forms, all its permutations, and uh, talking with gerontologist Tracy Gendron. She wrote a book called Ageism Unmasked, subtitled Exploring Age Bias and How to End It. She's chair of the Department of Gerontology at Virginia Commonwealth University. And Lorraine Carey um, is a writer. She's a playwright uh, based here in Philadelphia. In fact, her memoir, Lady Sitting, is being adapted into a play. It will debut at the Arden Theater in January here in Philadelphia. Much more after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
0: This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty and talking with our guests Tracy Gendron and Lorreen Carey about uh, aging, as I mentioned, in all its forms and guises. Let me pick up on something that um, Lorene was saying right before the break, Tracy, about um, all this caregiving that goes on in this country and how little support there is for it. Um, and, and I have to say, almost everyone I know that's involved in this just struggles to find people and to be uh, available to, to those who are in need.
1: Yeah, it's it's such a great point, and it is a, a particular challenge and a particularly challenging time because Lorraine is absolutely right. As much as we can get the joys out of the caring relationship, when we lack the infrastructure and the community supports and the training and the education. Um, And even it boiling down to, you know, paying people a living wage for doing caregiving and those types of services, it does become a challenge. And we really are in a very difficult place, I think. I think that's one of the things that was really disrupted. It was disrupted before, but really COVID disrupted it even more. Mm -hmm. And now there's such a critical shortage of people that are working and want to work in that space that it's, it's really more at a crisis point than it has been before. It's a great point.
0: Yeah, and at the same time, I do feel like young people who are having children or starting a career, they say, you know, there's no family leave in this country, or barely any family leave in this country. That we, And this is sort of a more general point, Tracy, but we sort of leave people to their own devices and say, you figure it out and we'll help here and there, but you're basically on your own.
1: Exactly. And then, you know, talk about how inequality in all of its forms plays a role into that. Um, But it it certainly does. It becomes harder and harder when you don't have access and then maybe you don't have transportation and then maybe you don't have, you know, internet and maybe you don't have a living wage. And, you know, it kind of goes on and on and it just piles on and becomes very challenging.
0: Do you see, and this is maybe a more political uh, question, Tracy, but do you see... This becoming an issue that uh, and it's often said that, you know, seniors get get Social Security, which did a lot to reduce and in some cases eliminate senior poverty when it went into effect. But do you see sort of people sort of uniting, saying we need to be able to have policies that take better care of each other?
1: Yeah, there's definitely glimmers of hope. And I'm, I'm an optimist, so I'm always finding <laughs> glimmers of hope. That's just, yeah, how I kind of roll through life. But I do think that, you know, we are seeing more advocacy around it, definitely more acknowledgement of it. Um, you know, there was an executive order in April about increasing access to high quality care and supporting caregivers. That certainly shows some momentum. So the conversation is being had. It's just these are deeply structural problems that's going to take a while to, to kind of navigate and dig out of.
0: Lorene, let me let me go back to you and even going back to your Nana and, and the book that you wrote about taking care of her um, and all the emotions of that. I mean, it seemed that taking she was demanding. I mean, she was she was a person. <laughs> she was demanding, and she, you know, had her foibles. But obviously, she had some extraordinary parts of her, of her personality, like all of us. But that, but taking care of someone like that taps into every human emotion, at least the way that you wrote about it. <laughs> Did it feel that way? I mean,
2: from joy to fury. <laughs> um, you know, when you try to boil these down, you, you talk about the sort of the mashup of. Yeah everything from fear to love which is where where we're all living fear to love, fear to love and, and I just do want to underscore what Tracy Gendron is saying which has everything to do with our our leaving th- families to fend for themselves um, we had means we had a family we had a house that was larger. We were living in the rectory of my husband's church in East Shangri La Falls. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, for, <laughs> for, for outsiders, there East <laughs> Falls, right, right, yeah. with with the green. It, it's green and fragrant, right? Um, not in our our regular what we call our real house in South Philly, which is very tiny. Um, we didn't have um, we. We didn't have trouble having people around us. We had a church right next door. Could take people when Nana wanted to go to church at coffee hour people fussed over her, which oh. she liked very much. Sure. We had a we had a gorgeous organist pianist. Roland would play music and I would roll Nana over and she could take off her earphones. And the microphone, because she couldn't hear, she could take off her glasses, we would sit in the church, and Roland would say, what would you like me to play? And the organ would come up through our feet. And Nana would hold my hand and say, oh, honey, when we're here, I feel like myself. Oh, I feel like myself. Wow. But that's community, right? That's community. We had every resource you could want. We had enough money. We had enough food. My my daughters came. My older daughter came every Thursday night that God sent. Thank you to come and do. And that's where we got the word lady sitting. She came and she did lady sitting. Yeah. My sister came down with her family, her hilarious two boys, her husband, bags of stuff. They'd say we brought dinner. We ate out of those bags for a week. They would take care of her for you know the entire day and we'd all leave all of us would just run away um we and then we'd come back and have them right we had everything people are doing this with nothing yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And Tracy, can you speak to that? And it, it, I mean, I think it's... And it was still hard. And it was still hard. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And joyful. But just this sort of, I mean, we have so many divides in this country, including, you know, people's ability to, to age gracefully and with dignity. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's. I mean, Lorraine, you said it just so beautifully. And it's true when you have that sense of community. And you have that support, and you have enough money and enough food, and it makes it a very, very different experience. But there's a lot of people out there at all different ages that don't, that don't have that sense of community, that don't have what they need to be able to navigate um, caregiving, nonetheless aging. I mean, even if you take a step back and you think of this in terms of aging, Our outcomes, how well we age, are also really affected and really driven Mm -hmm. by all of the other kinds of identities that we have and all of the other forms of discrimination that we experience and all of the barriers that we may face that that all impacts how we age. Mm -hmm. Do we have access to healthy foods? Do we have access to a safe place to exercise? Do we, you know, all of these things kind of culminate and come together to to really influence our whole aging experience and the outcomes of that aging experience. So it's it's quite a salient, relevant point that really can't be underscored.
2: And right up right up, right up, right up to the end. As I'm as I'm listening to you and thinking about gerontology, I think about a, a woman who's become a dear friend, Neville Strumpf, who was in gerontology here at Penn. She had so much to do with getting rid of restraints. And in Nana's last nine days, when I could no, we could no longer handle her needs at home, and we took her to the hospice, and the, the, the hospice insisted, they said, we will not put restraints on. Mm. Literally, you mean restraints? Literally, right? literally, they would not handcuff her to the bed Ugh. for her yeah. last days of yeah. life. Yeah. And I'm thinking how, you know, research and gerontology... And and then I go to this other, this new church, and I find that the person who had to do with that is, is there, you know, in the pew. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: I mean, talk about connection, right?
1: Talk about connection. <laughs> yes.
0: And I wonder too, Jan- uh, Tracy, just the importance of touch for an older person.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Skin hunger is something that I like to talk about and emotional hunger. You know, we all need that physical connection. We all need touch. And when you don't have it, you can literally be starved for it. So that's that's another way that, that I think ageism actually plays a really huge role, both in community and in long-term care communities. When we are afraid to touch other people, um, it leaves them really lacking. It leaves, leaves them really wanting. Think about the power of, of being hugged. And being touched and just having a hand placed on you, Um, it's, yeah, it's big. Yeah. I mean, makes one understand loneliness, Tracy. Absolutely. Absolutely. It feeds a sense of separateness and a sense of isolation. And as Lorraine, as you were talking, you know, I was thinking about, you know, how fortunate your Nana was to have so many advocates for her. You know, it's wonderful they did not restrain her. It's likely that, you know, she had a lot of loud voices around her (laughs) saying, you know, no, we will do what is best for her. Um, Again, aging and community. That's what it's about. Sure. And it's also about stories. And I have to say,
0: um, I, I was very close to my husband's um, Nana, um, who lived to almost 106. And she <laughs> wow. lived, I know, <laughs> she drove us kind of crazy because she was <laughs> extremely independent and would do things that just terrified me. But nonetheless, it was her life. And now, you know, we have stories of her now that we can share That that at that time we thought, oh my God, she's... You know, she's hopping on a bus going to who knows where and we don't know where she is. But you know, she made it back and, and those stories are so powerful and they're so important for
2: all of us. I think they're also they're also models. We learn we learn how to be grown ups from other grown ups. And if you don't have good grown up models then you say, Oh thank God there's a teacher or a librarian or a coach or something. Like we're always looking around saying, How do I do this? How do I do life? Oh wow, wow! So older, watching older people go at you know what what the mortality and morbidity go at it and figure out "Hmm, how do I do that? Well, this person did that. Lena Horne did this. So and so did that. Um, It it gives you. I mean, not everybody's going to be Auntie Mame. No. but if you have an entire community of people, you see that there are there are options. There there are options, right. and and I I want to know them. I also want to to give them. Um, so the idea of recovering from diseases, rec- or, or Okay, I am going to adjust my life because now I have this much. I remember telling the, the young person at my gym. He said, "Well, what are your goals?" I said, "I just want to get back on a yoga mat. Uh-huh. That's what I do." Or, or, you know, after after um, uh, cancer and chemo, I said, "Okay, what do I want to do? i I'd, I'd like I'd like to have a little bit of hair." Just like to have enough hair so that after twenty years of long dreadlocks, people will see me on the street and maybe it can look like I made a choice. That's all I want. Yeah. I mean, right. You change your goals so and, that you can live. Yeah, and, and choice is yeah. so
0: important. And and um Tracy uh Lorene talked about, you know, how do I how do I do this thing called life? And I think it's also how do I do this thing called death? And it's not like we're in necessarily in control of that. But I think as you get older, you no, do no, feel not like, control. no, you More, feel, no. you feel your days are numbered. Yeah. You know, you yeah, don't know I, exactly what that number is, but, yeah. but you, it's, it's a thoughtful or can be a thoughtful time.
2: It can also yeah. be freeing.
0: Yes. It can I also be freeing.
2: That. Okay. Yeah. You know. Here I am. Here I am. I get another chance to talk to Marty. <laughs> Whoa! So, I, I mean, I won't say any. Don't You don't have to get a look of fear. In no, mind, I'm not <laughs> right Exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, and I wonder, too,
0: uh, Tracy, how important gratitude is in, in the aging process.
1: Oh, I think gratitude is important in the life process. I mean, I try to live in a space of gratitude. So, yeah, I think just to to be able to focus on the gifts of every day. I mean, no matter what age you are, no matter what stage you're in, because we don't know what comes next. You know, we don't know how long we have. I think that is so important. But to, to touch on um, a point that was made, I think all of us being role models is, again, one of the things that we can all do in our everyday life. And I mean that as a role model, no matter what age you are recognize that how you talk about your life, how you Mm. talk about death, how you Mm. talk about Mm. morbidity and mortality, it all matters. When we say I am 52 years old, instead of saying 52 years young, it (laughs) matters, (laughs) right? I'm old. Words matter. Yes, it does. And I've worked really hard for it. So again, I, I think every one of us is essentially a role model. And to me, that's just super empowering. Because we all have the ability to make small changes that make a big difference. Tracy, do you think there's a thing called successful aging? Ugh, I think if you're alive, you're successful <laughs> in aging. I like That's the word. I, <laughs> <laughs> I just can't stand that term. What is successful aging? Anybody who is aging and is breathing and is living is successful at aging. So I think we can use that to try and have healthy behaviors, to maybe maximize our lifespan, maximize our health span. But again, we get to define success for ourselves, and it can change over time. Mm-hmm. Maybe success is to grow a little bit of hair. Mm-hmm. Maybe success is to be able to get back on the yoga mat. We get to decide that, and we get to change that as we go and as we age. hmm
2: mm-hmm.
1: And it might be success may be... Um,
2: learning to forgive it may yeah. be it may be I, I mean for for me it's been amazing doing these different genres i mean I, I always wrote i always wrote books because i had a family and writing a book was the only thing i could do um sort of by my damn sob up on the third floor at four thirty in the morning and then still come down and do breakfast and you know have a a life and and be an organic uh, dinner mom for kids. And it was really important to my adulthood to figure out how to have a marriage, how to have those kids. My folks were divorced. Their folks were divorced. We had to go all the way back to great-grandmother to get a marriage. Like, I wanted to figure these things out. Um, I couldn't do that and go to rehearsal and be at the theater, at night I couldn't do that and write scripts at all yeah. now I can and now you can yeah.
0: well Lorraine Carey as always a great pleasure to talk to you have you okay. with us on the radio and again her memoir Lady Sitting about caring for her 100 year old grandmother in the last year of her life is being adapted to the stage it'll be at the Arden Theatre in January and Tracy Gendron thank you for joining us today on The Connection as well Thank you so much. This was lovely. Lovely to have you. And again, her book is called Ageism Unmasked, Exploring Age Bias and How to End It. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection. The show is produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler. I'm Moss Moskowain. Thank you so much for joining us.